gotta give the runes to the river to be a river. And a lot of people are having a lot of struggle with that, you know, because that impacts what we think of as community. And basically, we're on a pogo stick, back and forth, hurricane to hurricane. But there's never really any great, you know, rebirth. You're hearing sounds from the Lumber River, recorded by the Lumber River State Park staff. This is Southern Futures, and I'm your host, Melody Hunter-Pillion, with the Center for the Study of the American South. Lumber River Keeper Jeff Curry is no stranger to the sounds of this river. It runs through nine South Carolina and North Carolina counties, including Robinson, Hoke, and Scotland. Jeff is joining us today along with Diamond Holloman, a doctoral candidate in the Environment, Ecology, and Energy program at UNC. She's working with Jeff and community members along the Lumber River in their continued struggle to recover from hurricanes. Folks in this diverse community, including Native Americans and African Americans, are telling their stories. Jeff and Diamond, the two of you are assisting in that community storytelling of vulnerability and resilience. Welcome to the podcast. What are the two of you seeing as people struggle four years after Hurricane Matthew and two years after Florence? I mean, when you've had water surrounding or up inside of your house, um, just the, the the logistics of getting that situated and 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 cleaning out your house and dealing with FEMA or not dealing with FEMA, but also the emotional and social and and economic, all of those ramifications have taken its toll on the county and the region, and people. You know, recovery, resilience, they're all great words, but people are still struggling. People are still working to try to get their lives back to a place they were before. Um, and, you know, it's something that it's not a one, two, two five year. It's 10 and 20 years out that this is going to keep, you know, people are still going to be working to try to get back to a place they were before. And so it's a long-term deal that I don't think a lot of people who don't live in the region really understand. And Diamond can definitely attest to that as well. Me not being from Robinson County, not being from North Carolina, you know, I have, and I recognize that I have a very outsider kind of viewpoint and coming in and having people let me into their homes and into these um, intimate spaces has allowed me to see the ways in which, like Jeff said, they are trying to recover and, and deal with, you know, the physicality of it all. Um, but also deal with the emotional aspects. Um, children that have, you know, young children who have been through these storms now um, have, a, in a way, this like post-traumatic stress that's accompanied with large rains or if it's, you know, a thunderstorm. Um, and so dealing with some of those issues that have to deal with the recovery or the aftermath of the disaster and also still trying to work every day and, and still trying to make sure that all the bills are paid. Doing these things at the same time is a challenge. It's a challenge for anyone. Um, and that's what a lot of people I've talked to um, in Robinson County are dealing with. Diamond, you said you're not from Robinson County, not from North Carolina. Tell us where you're from and, and kind of were you surprised at just uh, the hospitality that you found in Robinson County? 
it was happily surprised. So I'm from um, Bed-Stuy, Bedford-Stuyvesant, New York, <laughs> um, which is in Brooklyn. My accent's kind of, you know, calmed down a little bit. I've been in the South for a number of years. <laughs> but um, I met folks at a summit, environmental justice summit that I went to who are from Robinson County. And I was just very eager to talk to anybody. And they were like, not only did they say, yeah, let's talk, but they were like, come to my house and, you know, meet my mom, meet my, my other family members and let's, you know, chit chat. And that's something that, listen, not to say New York isn't me, but you'll be hard pressed to find that type of <laughs> vibe in New York. Um, and so that was a really um, pleasant surprise. And, and the folks that I've talked to have all been like that. Jeff, you are the river keeper, so professionally, you know the river, but you're also a member of the Lumbee tribe, and um, from a personal standpoint, you have this personal knowledge uh, and very intimate knowledge of the river. What are the problems for the rivers? Um, In particular, what problems are you seeing when it comes to these major storms? What we saw through the storms is is flooding that in places and in communities that had never seen that level of flooding but what we also know going back historically a lot of these places south and west lumberton uh areas around back swamp and robinson county other areas have been flooding for over 100 years if not longer um back when they were swamps a lot of these areas were swampland that were cleared uh Swamplands that were cleared back in the early, like late 19th century, early 20th century. And people didn't live there for a long time. And then they did move into those areas over time. And so, you know, the issues that we're dealing with are compounded because people don't realize oftentimes that they are living in in floodplains. But what we're seeing is, you know, some communities have gotten assistance and some communities have uh, been you know, helped by FERC or towns or counties. But then you've got areas that are kind of out of the way out in the county that haven't had a lot of assistance and were flooded catastrophically with what, you know, people have talked to me about, you know, rivers going through their front yard or through their house and were caught unawares that they lived in a place that was that vulnerable uh, to floodwaters. And so, you know, if we look back in time, we can see that, you know, a lot of places would flood, they did flood, but the levels that we've seen from the hurricanes as well as extreme weather events of rainfall um, are just not what was in, it wasn't in people's minds that this could happen to this extent and this scale. And so, you know, it's been, it's been tough to hear how it how it impacted people but it's also been really tough to get information back to government and get government down on the ground to actually address a lot of these issues because a lot of people think it's a quick fix and it's not a quick fix we don't know where the water is going in the watershed and until we know and map where all the water is going, where all the canals and ditches and drain pipes and all of this water is going and where it's flowing and where it's not supposed to flow and where it should be flowing, we're not really going to get a complete sense of how we can deal with this. And we got to give the room room to the river to be a river. 
And a lot of people are having a lot of struggle with that, you know, because that impacts what we think of as community and places we live. But, you know, I think there are programs that they say are going to address this, but they also have to take into account that these are communities and these are people. And they've been living there for 100, 200, 300 years in perpetuity. Jeff, you talked about this being, these are communities. Um, these are people who have been there hundreds of years, as you have said. And so there are stories to tell with that, the stories of that history, but also change over time, um, in particular, rapid change that we might be seeing in the environment. Uh, and Diamond, you've developed a project that invites people to capture those stories of change and those stories of struggle. And um, thankfully, you have Jeff for his expertise and his relationships in, in that community. Tell us about the project that you, Jeff, and the folks in the community are, are doing. Um, Jeff and I, folks in the community, and some other UNC researchers are working um, on this Czech project. And it's a consortium of different universities, UNC um, Chapel Hill being one of them. And CHECK stands for Coast Climate, the Humanities, and the Environment Consortium. Um, and it's a project in which, um, a grant project in which we were given funds and um, Melinda Lowry kind of gathered us as a team together. And we brainstormed what we would need, what we wanted to do, and how we can make a project that leaves room and space for community members to really take the lead once we get started. I think that's something that's a little different than traditional environmental grants or really kind of research grants is that we purposefully left room for community members to change some of the aims um, <clears throat> or think through with us and how we conduct the project. Um, so the first phase of the project is to do this photo voice. Um, photo voice is something that I have piloted before for my dissertation work um, and was happy, more than happy, actually very excited to bring into this space um, and expand it to work with folks out in Robinson County. So what photo voice is, is um, you allow or you give folks cameras um, and you provide a prompt. Typically this prompt is um, historically informed. Um, we knew we wanted to do something around natural disasters. Um, and we chose not to use the word hurricane in particular because we're in a very interesting moment now with COVID. And we didn't want to limit the scope of um, thinking about what disaster meant and, and means within folks' everyday of lived experiences. So we talk about disasters and what does it mean to um, experience them, live with them, and think through kind of the threat of future disasters. Right now we're in what is presumed to be one of the worst hurricane seasons um, on the Atlantic in a while. And so we wanted to give community members a space to think through all of those things. Um, and so we provided this prompt and right now, we're in the space where community members are taking pictures of their community, of whatever, you know, they're going through their, their lives, their houses, whatever feels right to them. And then they bring those photos back to us. And we have a large focus group conversation about what those photos mean, um, where they were taken. Um, and this allows for not only communication between the researcher 
um, or the research team and community members, but also for community members from these different walks of life to talk to one another um, and to have generative conversations about what the problems are and what some potential solutions are. And ultimately we want to use these photos and other kind of creative responses to these photos to create something that we can um, provide to decision makers or policy makers um, in order to have some type of positive change um, in their communities. Have, I mean, that's the voice part of photo voice is to have their voice taken to a different space and then amplify in order to, to have some real action occur. I think there's a lot of trust involved when people are gonna share stories when you know, these disasters have had so much impact on their on their lives. And so, Jeff, tell me, is there a lot of trust when it comes to sharing stories um, and then thinking about what outcomes might be from sharing stories? Like what's the, you know, what's the what's the what's the upside of sharing the story? And is there trust that the upside might be there? I guess I'm asking in particular with indigenous communities. Well, uh, I'll put it this way. The, there's a lot of trust on, on a deep level um, that has to be built just to get to a place where people are willing to, to talk, not, not even share stories beyond that about what's been going through. I mean, whenever I first started going around after Hurricane Florence and started talking to folks, I was hired as a riverkeeper right before the hurricane, about less than a month. And so after the hurricane... I started going around and I went to some communities and we were doing some well water sampling. And I talked to some of the folks uh, that we were uh, getting samples from because people were worried about their water quality. And uh, in Robinson and a lot of southeastern North Carolina, people use sand wells, push down wells, which are or what's called wash down wells, which are like 15 to 30 to 40 feet in the ground. And that's it. And so they can be contaminated rather easily. Well, when we're going out and talking and, and, and I have folks who are telling me how they have been flooded out, um, flooded around, flooded through, and that they're getting no feedback from elected representatives, whether it's county, local, state, federal, and nobody's calling them back and nobody's coming back to visit. And I say, well, I'll be back next week. And I go back next week. And I'll be back the next week and I go back the next week. That's the level of trust that we need to build first before they even go into detail about, you know, what stories and what affected them and how, how deeply this has changed their lives and, and, and really been upheaval in their lives and, and how they're trying to get to a place where they can just get some help. Number one, listen to what people are saying not say a word and then come back, listen some more. Yes, the process takes a long time, but in order to make it right, in order for to be, you know, resilience means to to rebound. Well, we just keep rebounding. And we're like basically we're on a pogo stick. Back and forth, hurricane to hurricane. But there's never really any great, you know, rebirth. The communities aren't reborn. They're just rebounding back and forth. I was over here, you know, basically doing the yes and the snaps. Um, 
because part of <laughs> part of what I've had to learn um, going through this as an academic is I can't ignore the the part of me being an academic that doesn't go away. And so yes, when I go in, and yes, people are very nice, and they'll tell me the story of you know what they're going through in regards to hurricanes. But there's also this this pressure, and it's a welcome pressure that I take on as an outsider that I need to do something like, you know, just coming and being extractive. That's something that academia has done historically, especially in marginalized communities. And so I need to, you know, be a little more intentional about the processes that I use, not just within my research, but as an activist, quite frankly, um, and, and try and do things that give that always give back in a way that is useful. And so a lot of that, I mean, I've been listening for years. I, I tell people this all the time, I'm listening. I'm listening, I'm listening, I'm listening. And if there's something that I can do, tell me, you know, and I will do my best. Um, part of this check project, and I remember when we were formulating part of the check project, Jeff and I were like, whatever we do, we, it has to, the end point is that people are going to be People who make decisions can listen to people in the community. Um, whatever you know that looks like, whatever kind of creativity we decide to embed in the project, the end point is that. Um, and so I'm just over here snapping because it was <laughs> Jeff <is> so eloquent, <laughs> like poetry. nation's wild and scenic river system, the Lumber River is a national water trail designated so by the National Park Service. But long before those designations, indigenous tribes, including the Lumbee tribe, embraced the free-flowing river as a central source of their travel, living, and heritage. Enslaved African Americans used the river and its swamps as a mode of escape and a way of living after emancipation. So this river has deep history and meaning for folks. And Diamond and Jeff, you guys were talking about that, that this is a, more of a historic thing, uh, a, a cultural thing. Um, but I want folks to have a sense of when we say people are still struggling, are y'all seeing people who are still literally not back in their homes? Now they're full of mold and they're still living in trailers and outbuildings. Um, so there are people who are still not back in their homes Um and there's also people that, you know, just gave up on their homes and moved in with family or found other accommodations. And uh, a large number of people left the county um, after both hurricanes, uh, so much so that the county school system, because of the amount of students that had left in certain areas, closed four or five schools uh, in 2019. There's been money funded, funding that has been released since the virus, since COVID-19, that is supposedly going to go fix and help things and community and recover and all of that. But people really haven't been able to give input on it. From the people I've talked to, that's a very similar story. Um, all of what Jeff is saying, um, because a lot of the solutions that are provided aren't really tackling some of the systemic issues. Um, that Robson County has been 
you know, exposed to, really. Um, it's not tackling any kind of, of the, the racial um, profiling that has happened in the past that led to some of the present conditions. Um, it's not tackling some of the economic um, historical processes that, again, marginalized certain folks of color and didn't marginalize others. And so the solutions that are presented are very much partial. Even if they are proximate, even if they are ahistorical, they're also, they're, they're just so partial. And there's also this element of people don't know where the money is. I've heard that, I've been in the field in Robson County since 2017 and with all of the recovery issues, people don't know where the money is. Um, even people who are very actively looking like, hey, where did this grant you know, go to? Or we apply for this, what happened to that? I've heard this uh, quite a few times. Is it where, where is that money? Where is it happening? How is it being allocated? And in, like Jeff was saying, in what ways are the community members being contacted? Are you taking, you know, are you going door to door? Are you taking people's opinions into account? Um, these are the questions that kind of echo through the recovery processes in Robinson County. Diamond, your research looks at storms and their impact on not just geographical, but cultural landscapes. The, the lack of community input you and Jeff have both mentioned means your photo voice project is more important than ever, I would think. So when will folks see and hear the images and voices captured uh, in and by their community? And, and have all that shared with decision makers that you referenced? So right now we are um, in progress. Like I said, community members are out taking photos now. We have met a number of times over Zoom. Um, we've had to move to this virtual space, which is very interesting for the community members I'm working with and myself because we're so used to doing this engaged work in person. So we're using Zoom <laughs> and um, thinking of ways to do like contactless pickup of memory cards and things of that nature. So right now it's in progress and with community led projects as opposed to kind of just community um, contacted or, or slightly community engaged projects, the timing is really up to them. Um, they do have their everyday lives. They have you know, full-time jobs, they have kids that they have to take care of, and family members, and so um, I can't give you a definite time, <laughs> but I can tell you that we are, um, we are definitely aiming um, for something, for a tangible outcome soon. It's not hard to get people involved when they actually have a voice, finally, in the end product, where someone is actually going to listen to it. This is our Southern Futures Reading Corner, and I love it when we have two guests just to see how varied their choices are. Diamond, let's start with you. What piece did you select to read for us? So I picked a poem by Tyree Day called um, A List of Waters. I picked this poem um, because part of what I'm understanding about Robinson County in talking to folks and in reading some of the history about the county is that there is a really strong connection to waters and river and place. 
And this poem, I think, does a really great job of weaving that into family histories and representing that well, even using different bodies of water. So again, this is A List of Waters by Tyree Day. One, the scar that flows from my aunt's thigh to the boulder of her swollen ankle is a map of the Haw River, each toe a blue heron. Two, my mama's water is all water. I'm every river rock inside her being smoothed over. Three, the palms of my uncle's hands are the deep river when he's holding a gutted trout. Always something is bleeding. Four, you saw her bloody and did nothing, you yellow perch. Five, my uncles sinned openly on Sunday, fed in the daytime a white catfish. Six, my smallest cousin is a salamander in their father's Noose River arms, legs hanging there like black water. Seven, every woman who has ever told me to clean my face is the Atlantic Ocean. Eight, the shoreline of this beach is also a history lesson. These seashells have blood on them. Nine, I dream mostly in floods. Jeff, what did you choose for us today? It's called Naked in the Wind. And it was a book, poems from Naked in the Wind. It was a book published um, in Pembroke in Robinson County by Quetzalcoatl Press. A hundred copies were uh, printed in 1971 and was the first book from the, uh, published by the Indian poet Simon J. Ortiz, who who went on to become the dean of Indian poetry in America. He is held up as the as as the main poet in, of the 20th century and 21st since he's still going. And I, I had a chance to meet him when he come, came to Pembroke years ago and talked with him a little bit. Um, but yeah, I, I find it amazing that um, that this was published in Pembroke in 1971 and it took me years to find the book. It's hard to figure out what to read but I'm going to read. Uh, I'm going to read two, and the first one, the first one is a short poem, and the second one is the end of a longer poem. Mm-hmm. Um, the first one is called "This American." This man, he talks me words. These words grasp me. He is telling me that I should buy it. It's got good paint, pretty good tires. Listen to the engine. This is a damn good buy. He is telling it to me. These are the reasons you need it. I am cringing. I don't need those clothes. They smell of machinery, rubber, insides of buildings. You're lacking this. You're hurting without it. I am buying it. I'm wrapping it up to take home to my children. You have made a good deal. And I leave ashamed. This American has sold me things I don't need. And I kind of feel like sometimes that's where we're at in Robinson County. We just keep getting sold a bunch of things we don't need and the help we do needs not coming. Um, but this is, uh, this is the last verse. Uh, the last one is the last verse um, in a longer poem that ends the book called A Birthday Poem for Myself, India, 1971. 
and this is uh, number five. It doesn't end in all growing, in all happiness, in all sadness, in all soothing the aches of all pains. It doesn't end, especially good words. Jeff and Diamond, thank you for reading those selections for us. And now we're going to close out the show with how you guys reimagine the South and the role of the Lumber River and its people in the future. My reimagining would be one in which grassroots ideas, movements, solutions were centered in solution making um, in the county. I think Robinson as a county represents some of the nexus of Southern issues in in many different ways. Um, Socially, economically, we're talking about racism, we're talking about marginalization, we're also talking about tenacity and we're also talking about strength. And so the communities there, I think, represent, um, at least in part, um, what the South is. And so my reimagining of of that would be their voices being not just amplified, but at the forefront of change. And that would, I think that would fundamentally change how people are living. People will, who have had enough, will take it on themselves to change their little corner of Southeastern North Carolina, their corner of the Lumber River Watershed, uh, their corner of Robinson County for the better to help their neighbor, to help their community, whether it be Indian, Black, Hispanic, White, across the area. Because until, until we do that, until we take it on ourselves and quit looking for our neighbor to do it and just do it on our own to help our neighbor, I don't think we're going to have the change that we all want. And so I, my revisioning is, is revisioning a community that comes closer, that becomes closer, that, that is drawn together by the need for something different uh, going forward. Diamond and Jeff, we appreciate the time you spent with us today and also the work you're both doing in Robinson County. Thanks also to our listeners for tuning in. Join us for our next episode. For executive producer, Dr. Melinda Maynor-Lowry, and sound editor, Mark Meyer, I'm Melody Hunter-Pillion. Southern Futures is a podcast powered by the Southern Futures Initiative, a collaboration between the College of Arts and Sciences, UNC Libraries, the Center for the Study of the American South, and other units of the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. Southern Futures, reimagine the American South.